Welcome to ContenderCast, a leadership conversation centered on shining a light on bright ideas. And now here's your host, Justin Hahnemann. Thanks for downloading. Thanks for tuning in. This is Justin Hahnemann. This is the ContenderCast, and I'm excited because we're in a new year and we're kicking off the new year in a big way with a great friend of mine. Uh, many of you have probably heard of or know, and that is Bill Curry. And Bill, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Well, I'm I'm delighted. I'm honored to uh, be the kickoff guy for this year. Exactly. Well, if you don't know Bill Curry, um, let me just tell you a little bit about his background. Coach Curry started his career playing at Georgia Tech. He actually played center, and I had no idea you played center, which we, we'll have to talk about that in a minute. Uh, for Coach Bobby Dodd, um, a, a person we'll also talk about today. He spent 10 seasons in the NFL at the Green Bay Packers, Baltimore Colts, Houston Oilers, LA Rams. He played center in the NFL as well, which I found amazing. Um, part of a couple of Super Bowl teams, unbelievable, four of them. <laughs> See, he's just put up the four for me. And he was the head football coach at a couple of schools you might have heard of, Kentucky, Alabama, Georgia Tech, and most recently, Georgia State. You've probably seen him on ESPN. Uh, he and I actually served together on the Bobby Dodd Coach of the Year Award Board, and we'll talk about that today. But, Bill, again, thanks for for uh, jumping on the podcast. Delighted. Thank you. All right. So let's start with um, a question I think a lot of people ask, which is, what's the state of college football today? I mean, you have seen it from you know, a player in college, a, a winning player and, and coach, NFL uh, college coach, et cetera. Where are we today and where has the, the game come and where is it heading? Like, What are some of the trends? Well, the game is in transition. The people who determine policy, rules, et cetera, are being forced to face a lot of issues that um, football has never faced before. The most important is player safety. and It has to do with uh, brain damage and uh, the, the damage that occurs when one pounds one's head against large people for year after years. I mean, uh, I was a center in the NFL, as you mentioned, and the average offensive lineman on an average year is hit in the head a thousand times in the games. Wow. That's not even practices. That doesn't count practice. So how many times – are we hitting the head thousands and thousands of times? And that is not good. Nobody can argue that that's okay, especially with what we're seeing now uh, in, with the brain damage and, and the research that's being done that shows that, that there is a lot. And, and a lot of my friends are already um, have passed away, wow. a lot of my teammates. Wow. Others are in trouble with dementia and such. So that's something, and it's being addressed medically. Okay. It's being addressed in the courts, um, it's being addressed in the rules for the little guys, which is probably the most important area in teaching to play the sport without smashing your face into the opponent. For me to smash my face into Joe Green or Merlin Olson, names that people our age will recognize, Absolutely. those are Hall of Fame defensive linemen, that was exactly like running into a brick wall. And those little plastic helmets we wore with the little funny-looking face mask didn't protect us very well. Why am I still uh, – my wife says I'm not any dumber than I've been for the last 70 years. Uh, why is that the case? And some of my friends didn't fare so well? We don't know. But as we learn those things, that will change the game more. Right now, if I'm charged with targeting, if you're, if you're 
coming across the middle, you're a defenseless wide receiver and Absolutely. I'm a safety. If I hit you in the head with my head, I'm ejected from the game. That's going to change tackling. No question. Enormously. No question. And anybody that complains about that, who thinks that sissy hasn't been out there smashing their face into things. So it's the game is transitioning in that area. The game is transitioned in terms of the tactics. Um, the great Tom Landry, the Dallas Cowboy genius that coached there for many years, was a dear friend of mine. And he was one of the many great coaches that have mentored me. And the last time I talked with him, not long before his death, I, I called him. I said, Coach, what do you think is going to happen next? What's going to happen in the actual <clears throat> execution and the tactics of football? He said, I'm shocked to be saying this because I've always been such an advocate of the running game, but the game is going to transition from being based on who can run the ball best to rhythm passing, precision, rhythm yeah. passing. And so we could still argue if you look at the teams that are dominant now, they still run the ball well, but they can also throw and catch the ball in ways that most of us could not. Sure. So. There's all that going on. It's a fascinating time, and it's a scary time. I have a lot of moms who ask me, should I let my uh, son play football? And I, I tell them, you have to decide that for yourself because there is a risk. No question. So um, what have you seen in terms of changes? Let's, let's take college football in particular. There's a lot of trends out there in the market today, right, in terms of, um, for example, the investment in facilities and the, the growth that goes with that and the, the focus on coach compensation and then and, and all of the trends around uh, the focus on winning uh, and the different types of programs that are being put together. What have you seen change during your time as a player, then a, a head coach, and, and now as an, an analyst and someone that coaches a lot of other coaches? There's no question that um, the change in facilities has reached the point well beyond absurdity. Uh, when Todd Stansbury was hired to be the athletic director at Georgia Tech, his alma mater, my alma mater, and he's, he's a fellow that played for us when we were there in the early 80s, uh, he was asked, well, Todd, what about expansion of facilities? Are you going to do some improvement? He said, yeah, we're going to do some improvement. There'll be no waterfalls. Well, that's the first time <laughs> I knew that Oregon has waterfalls. waterfalls. And then I went up to Clemson. One of my, Another yeah. one of my former players is Dabo Sweeney, the coach at Clemson. And I yeah. walk in his – Taj Mahal, the looking facility there. He said, Coach, I got a sliding board. I said, You're the only guy I know in the world that's, <laughs> that's a, a national champion board. coach that's got a slide, but I'm gonna watch you slide down it. I am not going to slide down it. So we've we've flipped out on the sure. facilities thing, just like America does. With anything that's going well, we're gonna do it until we kill it. We're gonna make it so big and absurd <laughs> that we'll kill it. That, that I think that's what's going on in facilities, and, and I just think it's uh, insane. Coaches' salaries, the day college administrators determined that the colleges were gonna compete with the National Football League for head coaches' salary, the day somebody got $3 million a year to coach ball, now, of course, it's much larger than that. When that, that was the day that everything changed. And in effect, now, for everybody except the players, we have two pro leagues. We have the NFL and we have major college football. 
it's the same in the eyes of the public, except yes. that people can attach to their team because they happen to have gone to a school or maybe they went there for a quarter or maybe they never went to college, but they love this school or that school because they like the style or they like the pizzazz or the, or the strut. Uh, but the biggest change of all in sport is the emergence of the minority athlete. Interesting. Absolutely taking over in terms of numbers. And why is that? Bear Bryant said it a long, long time ago. And somebody said, well, who, what group of players are the best ones now, coach? He said, the best ones are the ones that are hungry. And that's mostly those African-American kids that grew up without enough to eat. And we got white boys that are riding around in their mama's Cadillac eating Twinkies. Now, he didn't say that. I said that. But it's true. I mean, so so the guys that are hungry, that are anxious to play, sure. do the hard work and get out there. And there's, it's not because they're genetically superior. It's because they want to play. Right. They want to they want – this is a way for them to earn their way. So people uh, – learn diversity in the locker room in ways that they don't learn anywhere else. And people have been raised to hate each other's guts. You take a big old African-American kid off the corner from South Central Los Angeles and put him in a huddle with a kid from the hills of North Georgia, and they were raised very differently. They were raised to hate each other, they think. You stick them in the same locker room and make them dress next to each other, and two years, I've actually had this experience. Two years later, they walk in and say, Coach, you know what? I hated this guy when I got here, but he's like my brother now. I love him. And it lasts the rest of their life. Wow. That's the best thing that's happening in the football huddle. Yeah, I just watched the movie Remember the Titans last week, which is that exact story. That's exactly the story. Yeah. Um, we talk about uh, changes, a couple of changes around college football. Is that creating, though, almost different tiers within college football? And here's what I mean by that. I've, you know, with a smaller school that can't generate the attendance and therefore the revenue from football and therefore the facilities, et cetera, and they get the coaches. Is that creating a, a, a second or third tier within college football? Sure. But that that's always been there. Uh, we had an a incredible function this this past weekend in Atlanta with a bunch of the Hall of Fame coaches. And one of the guys that was here was Larry Karras, who coached at Mount Union College, Division Three. He has the best record of any football coach in the history of our sport. He coached like 30 years. He lost like three games or something. I mean, his record was, I'm, I'm exaggerating, his record was something like 328 wins and 14 losses. Unbelievable record. And so we asked him, Larry, how'd you do that? Why were you that successful? He said, we taught each guy to come there and improve as he got to our campus and continue to improve. And it was division three. So each of those young people had to have a job. He didn't just come right. in and on scholarship. He had, sure. to, he had to clean the stadium or serve food in the, in <laughs> wow. the uh, commissary or something like that. And, and you couldn't beat him. Right. I did a, over 200 games for ESPN. The only time I ever asked to go and shake the hands of the team that I that I covered that day was when I when I did the Mount Union National Championship wow. game wow. in 2002, I think it was. So anyhow, <laughs> there have always been tears, but the great lessons that you learn in football apply no matter what level you play. Uh, I think more and more schools now are having to make a decision whether they're going to drop back 
and play at I the F- okay. CS level Makes sense. or try to ratchet up like Georgia State's trying to do. Now we got the stadium at Georgia, uh, at, you know, what formerly the Turner Field sure. is the Georgia State Stadium. And Georgia State, with 53,000 students, is going to be able to compete at the highest level. Sure. It's taken longer than I thought it would, but it's going to happen. So I, that's a great segue. So um, it's not often in life that we have the opportunity to start something new from the ground up, um, whether it's starting a new business or going into a new role at a company and establishing a team and growing that or going and starting a football team. And you got to do that. I mean, you had already been at, as I mentioned earlier, Kentucky, Alabama, Georgia Tech and and others. And you had this opportunity to go and help start the Georgia State football program. So what made you decide to do that? And how did that all come about? And like, what were the things you you really learned from that that maybe were different than the other experiences you had? Well, it was unique. Um, First of all, we didn't have a football (laughs) or a chin strap or a practice field or a game field, yep. or a locker room, right. or an office, or a telephone. I mean, I, bless her heart. Small uh, things. <laughs> yeah. Mary McElroy, the athletic director, got so excited one day, she called me, she said, I found you an office. I said, great. <laughs> you got an office. You can um, have a program, football So <laughs> we just started like that, and a lot of wonderful people pitched in. And and so that's the part of it was the um, – the idea of starting something from scratch. Part of it was the fact that I grew up in College Park, but my father worked in downtown Atlanta at Rich's department store. That's right. I remember when uh, I was down there. Mr. W.A. Curry, my pop, was the sporting goods buyer. And downtown Atlanta, for me, was Disneyland. I could get on the trolley in College Park and come downtown, go to the Rialto Theater, Go by Riches, where my dad sold baseball gloves and fishing rods and <laughs> sporting goods and stuff. It was so. It was like, yeah, Riches uh, was like an Atlanta like staple. Yes, was bought, Riches, you know? Riches was. Um, it was the place was. for Atlantans to go because the rich family was so wonderful to everybody. Um, so, I, having seen Atlanta's, uh, the guts of Atlanta, sort of uh, go the way of a lot of big cities. I was desperate to be a part of something that would be vibrant and exciting in downtown Atlanta. And that was a selfish thing. Let's get people to the dome to watch another football game at least. And, and, if, and gosh, with uh, at the time we had 30,000 um, students. Now we got 53,000 right. at Georgia State. Right. Not many of them come back for a physics uh <laughs> confab right but they'll come back to a football game no question for homecoming so uh, and now we have a band if you if you looked at the um the 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 ajc you open up on the inauguration day for the second obama election marching down pennsylvania avenue is the georgia (laughs) Georgia state State. band we didn't have a band until we had a football team so all these these good uh, auxiliary things that go along with football can make a big difference in the vibrancy of downtown. And then I had no idea that Mark Becker was going to start buying up buildings and converting them into classrooms and laboratories. And Georgia State has essentially saved downtown Atlanta. Uh, So so I wanted to be a tiny part of that, and we had the privilege of doing that. So it's been exciting for that. But there's more. (laughs) Uh, My wife, Carolyn, was anxious to earn a Ph.D. in her chosen field of history. 
Our kids were little and they were in school. She was able to drive the kids to school, drive downtown to Atlanta, I mean, to Georgia State University. And it took her 14 years, but she earned her master's and her Ph.D. at that great school. Wow. So we're very (laughs) obligated to Georgia State. Wow. Yeah. And and for those that may not be familiar with Georgia State or or the Atlanta area, um, you know, what happened was, and and like many other cities, the growth moved to the suburbs for years and leaving midtown Atlanta and downtown Atlanta in the late 90s, mid 90s, late 90s, early 2000s, somewhat empty. um, And what has started at early 2000s until now has just been this unbelievable boom in midtown Atlanta and high tech, high, high growth, uh, new business, et cetera. A lot of movement of people in town away from the suburbs. And then downtown has been a little slower to evolve. But what has really been the trigger for growth downtown has been Georgia State. They've essentially created an entire campus with all of these legacy buildings in downtown. It's unbelievable to see the and, and something most people don't even realize or recognize. But when you drive through it, it's, it's just unbelievable what they've done with the area. It is. And it's exciting. Yeah, um, question. And, and the other thing that, that very few people are aware of when, when one begins to recruit for Georgia State, and especially now with the beautiful stadium, and it is the way the Turner Stadium was converted to Georgia State University Stadium was one of the great triumphs of the, of the administration's work because it is gorgeous. I didn't expect that. Right. I thought it would take years to get it looking, right. but it looks great. And it's going to make a difference in recruiting. And it's going to, uh, again, make people want to come to Atlanta. But there's a, this real selling point, uh, as it should be for any university, is how good is the school? Sure. No well, question. Georgia State's got top 10 programs in business yes, and business law, program, et cetera. a yeah. brand new science building at Pete Petit, um, yeah. the um, Petit Science Building over there. And um, I learned to my amazement when we started going out recruiting for Georgia State, there are more CEOs and CFOs of Fortune 500 companies right. from Georgia State wow. than there are from Tech and Georgia combined. Wow. And That's I'm an interesting guy. stat. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's incredible. And not even two minutes from each campus. So I, I, so you, you decide you're going to take the job. They give you an office. They find you an office. So then what? Like what, were the, like, what were the first couple of things that were critical to get the program started? I think it, you had one year where you were building, and then they started playing the second year. So what, what were the things that were like key to the building blocks, I'll call it, to get in place, to get the thing going? We started in June of 2008. And the only reason we started is because the students wanted it. The students voted by uh, something like 87% to increase the student athletic fee by a substantial amount, which generated $5 million a year. That's what really got us going. Wow. If, so the student students, if the students awesome. had not deeply desired this football team, it would have never even gotten off the ground. So that, that was that happened before I was brought on board. So I'm introduced and I'm going to be the head coach and I'm walking away from the dais and a guy rushes up to me. I swear this happy said, <laughs> all right, coach, when are we going to play the dogs? <laughs> <laughs> Let's go ahead and schedule that one. <laughs> well, we were dumb enough to play oh Alabama. I know. The first I saw, year. That. I saw <laughs> but that. But that was there was a lot of money involved. In right. That. I'm People sure about it. But um I mean, the anticipation was just incredible. And we did real well um, early. 
that, that was 2008. So we went all the way through 2008. We recruited a class. We practiced all of 2009. Got it. That was okay. the first year we had student athletes on campus. Got it. And we started playing in September of 2010. And the first year with a, a reasonable schedule that we controlled, except right. for the Alabama thing, <laughs> right. uh, we really uh, sort of played beyond ourselves and played real well. The sure. next two years, I was very disappointed, and, and it was the head coach's fault. We could have played a lot better football, but we did behave ourselves for the most yeah. part. Most of us graduated and since then. I still hear from those guys all the time. Sure. A lot of them have stayed around Atlanta. A lot of them are guys that wouldn't have gotten an opportunity to go to college any other way, and they know it, and they appreciate their alma mater. So a lot of good things have accrued to Atlanta and to Georgia State sure. because somebody had the audacity. Um, and it was Carl Patton, the previous president, who pulled the trigger. And I'll always be indebted to Dr. Patton, who was also a city planner. And uh, he deserves a lot of credit for getting this kind of thinking of restoring the buildings downtown, uh, that that was his stuff. Sure. So, uh, what were some of the reasons? Like, what what were some of the drivers behind some of your assistant coaches coming to join the program, and then the players? Like, why? What was the why in terms of coming to Georgia State? Well, it's amazing how many really good coaches need a job. <laughs> <laughs> I guess <And> so. <laughs> yours truly included. When you, get, when you get in coaching, there's going to be years. You don't there's going right? to be a year every now and then when you really need, you need a job. You want the phone to ring. And yeah. And you're networking, so, right? I mean, I was lucky to stumble onto some of them. Some of them had been my guys before. Right, right. I, I had had them on staffs before. Others were, um, I'm not going to call any names because I don't want to embarrass anybody. But they had been uh, hot items, hot commodities, sure. just a year or two before, and there had been a change on the co on the head coach right. of their staff, so they were out of work too, sure. and I was able to snap them up, wow. and so we did. We had a strong staff, and um, that was a good way to start. No question. Well, you've worked with a lot of different coaches, and uh, the last thing, last area I wanted to cover with you today are really some of the leadership lessons that. You know, you often talk about it. And for those of you that haven't ever heard Coach Curry speak, unbelievable speaker, you can go to his website, Coach Curry or BillCurry.net, um, to see some of those videos. And um, Bill, what I thought we could do to, to towards the end here is talk about, some, you know, what are those two or three things that you see that really work for leaders, work for coaches that are leaders, that are impact players, that work for Coach Dodd back in the day that still apply today? You know, let's talk about two or three of those I'd really like to give our listening audience you know, some of those to hang on to and think about as we go into a new year. Coach Dodd's great strength. Um, and I'm going to go through the great ones. I'm going to, perfect. I'm going to talk about <laughs> Dodd, Lombardi and Shula. And, and instead of giving a dry lesson, right. a list, <laughs> list of, of leadership traits, <laughs> traits, we know what those are and sure. we all work toward them, but I'm going to tell you what made these people great awesome. to us players. Bobby Dodd, uh, I was a lazy high school student. I'm not proud of that. And when I speak to student bodies, I, I tell them, don't do what I did. I jacked around in class and uh, I had no business going to Georgia Tech. And there were a bunch of us like that. Um, Coach Dodd would not allow you to screw up your education. Uh, and I found it out the hard way because he told us the first day, um, Men, if you're not a good football player, that's not your fault. That's my fault. 
because I invited you here. We're not going to kill you on the practice field. We're not going to run you off. And a lot of schools were running off kids that, that they had, had second thoughts about. We're going to keep you here, but you will go to every class and you will sit on the front row and you will take notes and you will do your work. I am a second quarter sophomore at the University of Tennessee and I'm 53 years old and that is not going to happen to you. <laughs> You will gra graduate. If you decide not to go to class, you'll regret that the rest of your life. Well, I thought he was so nice that he couldn't be serious about that. So I cut a chemistry class my freshman year. Seven, <laughs> 17 years old. How'd that go over? Oh, that went over really well. Because there's no way that I had figured out brilliantly that he couldn't catch me because there were over 100 kids in the class. So if I'm not there, who's going to know, no right? Know. The next day. My name was on the bulletin board. Bill Curry, report to Grant Field, 5.30 a.m. Wednesday morning in your running gear. They ran me up and down those west stands until I could not stand up. I was gagging and sobbing and wallowing in self-pity. And about the <laughs> 50th time I'm up and down those stadium steps, I decided that chemistry at 8 o'clock in the morning was a wonderful We're thing. Just fine. <laughs> and that's a cute little story. Here's what matters. I never cut another class. I graduated from one of the toughest schools in the world, a place that I had no business, only because my football coach wow. loved me too wow. much to allow me to self-destruct. And oh, by the way, he was a heck of a football coach too. <laughs> no doubt. He was so smart. Bear Bryant said, wrote in his book, mm -hmm. Coach Bryant's book, I would rather look across the field on Saturday and see anybody other than Dodd because he can beat you with his brain. Wow. So Maybe we knew we had that advantage, and he told us we were smart, and we were stupid enough to believe that. Um, but he was just wonderful. And, and, and so for me, not only did he uh, force me to extend myself. And I learned everybody that finishes Georgia Tech, and you know this, right. learns two things. You learn how to think and you learn how to work. That's right. Because otherwise you're not going to survive. No, not at all. So we learned those things. But he also gave me a mission in life because I have sought to live out his principles everywhere I've ever been. And I failed a bunch, certainly in the football area, uh, if I could be <laughs> half as smart as he was. But most of our guys have graduated, right. and the young ladies who, who help us, who work in the equipment room sure. and the training room, and thank goodness there is more field, female influence in football now, and I felt responsible for those young people too. So virtually all of our people have graduated everywhere we've been. So for me, I could go on and on sure. about what I owe that's, Coach Dodd. Coach Lombardi was, uh, I could never forgive Coach Lombardi for not being Bobby Dodd. Uh, Coach Dodd was the epitome of the Southern gentleman, and Coach Lombardi was not Southern. Right. Your religion, your family, <laughs> the Green Bay Packers, that's all you'll think of. Um, and then those, those will be your priorities. And then we thought as soon as we got on the practice field, he got confused about the priorities. And he was a brilliant football coach, much like Coach Dodd. But he had another advantage. And this is something I didn't experience in my college years. When I got to the Green Bay Packers in 1965, I had never been in a huddle with an African-American person. Vince Lombardi had this great sense of how to deal with the racial issues. He would not tolerate racism. 
He had been discriminated against because of his Italian-American heritage. He was an immigrant in the minds of some people. He, if you said one racist word in that training camp, you were gone. Everybody knew that. We had more African-American players than anybody in the league. Some teams had quotas. Some teams had no African-American players and bragged about it. We whipped them every single Sunday. And I started wondering, are, these, are they going to figure this out? Because we had Herb Adderley and Willie Wood and Willie Davis and Lionel Aldridge and Elijah Pitts. And, all, and they, not only were they great players, they were great human beings. Willie Davis in particular took me under his wing, taught me how to practice, told me he was going to get me through it. He'd say, uh, when Nitschke's tearing your head off and Lombardi's screaming profanity in your face, you come find me, I'll get you through it. <laughs> wow. Now, when I made it onto that Packer team, do you think I was grateful to the great Willie Davis, who, by the way, is a Hall of Fame defensive oh, end? He was the captain of the greatest football team of all time while working on his master's in business at the University of Chicago. Wow. He was a Grambling State University graduate. But for those guys to... Uh, not only uh, not um, look down on me, but to embrace me and to love me and to bring me into their fold, that changed my life. Sure. I, it transformed the way I saw every, not just African-American people, all people. Sure. I couldn't look he at anybody a for in you. a prejudiced way because of the way those guys operated. Right. And oh, by the way, nobody could beat us. <laughs> wow. It was so That's much right. fun to go play sure. football with those guys. <laughs> and then uh, just through... God's grace or good luck or something, I end up on the Baltimore Colts with Don Shula. Yeah. Vince Lombardi has the greatest playoff record in the history of NFL football. His record was 9-1. and one. He lost one playoff game wow. in all those years. They won five world titles in seven years. That will never be done again. <clears throat> then I go to Don Shula, Baltimore Colts. He's the winningest coach in the history of the NFL for total wins. Okay. And here's why. I think um, when he was going to trade for me, I had been put on the expansion list and been claimed by New Orleans. Right. A fate worse than death, I thought. <laughs> well, I get this phone call from a guy that claiming to be Don Shula. And I almost said something <laughs> smart. I almost I thought it was one of my buddies messing with me. <laughs> but I decided to play along and lo and behold, it was Shula. Thank goodness I didn't smart off. <laughs> but he was calling. He said, look, Bill, I'm thinking of trading for you. And I know you've been a starter on a Super Bowl team. Sure. But I want you to play special teams. See, Coach Dodd trained us all to cover kicks and to block on kick returns. And yep. I was a long snapper. And that's why Shula wanted me. I wasn't a very good starting player at the time. <clears throat> he said, if I bring you to Baltimore, will you play special teams and be happy with that? I said, Coach, I would crawl to Baltimore to play for you. <laughs> sure. So I end up playing for – not only did I get to play for Shula, he makes me special teams captain. He was the only coach in the league that had a special teams captain. So our first for my first game with the Baltimore Colts, I'm walking out to the middle of Memorial Stadium with Captain Unitas and Captain Bobby Boyd, these two all-pro, I mean, Hall of Famers, and I'm the special teams captain. You'd think <laughs> I was strutting. So um, – about the middle of the third quarter, we had an 80-yard punt return for a touchdown called back because I clipped oh. right in front of our bench. 
And Sheila ran on the field, grabbed me, and just screamed. Lombardi would have been proud of him. It was, <laughs> it was not nice language. Right. Well, if you cross the white line in the NFL, there aren't any nice people out there, including yours truly. So if you scream at me, I'm going to scream back at you with the same language, which I did to our head coach because uh, I didn't think I had clipped. So we're watching the film Tuesday morning, and the assistant coach said, Curry, is that a clip? I said, it might be. He said, well, let me make a suggestion. The next time you decide to dog cuss the head coach on national television, <laughs> you make damn sure it's not a clip. I said, oh, my gosh, I'm going to have a one-game career. Right. <laughs> and my Carolyn was flying in with our five-week-old baby girl that very week. We had picked out an apartment, and, and I'm going to get cut right. before my wife even arrives. So I went and found Shula. He took me in the equipment room, and I stammered and stuttered and said, Coach, I'm so sorry. I didn't. I popped off, and I was out of line. I'll never do that again, and um, I just want you to know I'm sorry. You know what he said? He smiled. He said, I kind of like that. <laughs> so he liked the fire. Yeah. He said, just don't clip the guy. <laughs> now, do you think we played hard for him? Right. I think Shula won more games than anybody in NFL history because once he recognized some grit in a guy, he would never give up on him. He gave me chance after chance after chance until I did become a starting player. And I played a long time as a starting player, and it's only because of Don Shula and because he wouldn't give up on me. Pretty amazing. Well, three amazing coaches, too. Well, thanks for helping kick off our year. No pun intended, but thanks, Bill. For more information on today's topic or to access additional leadership content, tools, and resources, check out contenderbrands.com. Also, you can download other ContenderCast episodes directly via the Apple iTunes App Store and Google Play Store. And remember, every winner started as a contender.